So it's school holidays in Australia and I'm taking my son Lincoln to a two-day learning labs workshop at Wollongong University, which is cool. We're in Sydney, so it's a bit of a trip, a couple of hours on the train. Um, this station, Hurstville. So my son's going to be in workshops from 9am until 3pm on both days. So I thought rather than working around aimlessly on the campus, while I wait for him to do his thing, wouldn't it be cool if I made use of the time and caught up with some healthcare innovators in Wollongong and see who's keen for a chat? I got introductions and offers to arrange tours and have chats. I've got a feeling that two days is going to be enough. So in this episode, come along on the journey with me, hear from innovators making a meaningful impact in healthcare, in and for the people of Wollongong. Sutherland. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Well, let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Being a GP in Australia is a busy gig. You see a lot of patients during the day, then you're expected to find time outside of the clinic to maintain your CPD and education. A great way for GPs to access education is through podcasts. And Australia's leading education podcast for busy GPs is called The Good GP. It's had well over a million downloads, regularly ranked in the top 10 medical podcasts in Australia, and a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. The show's hosted by three GPs, Chris, Tim, and Sean, and The Good GP regularly features episodes on all the important topics that GPs need to know without all the fluff. And the Good GP podcast now has the support of MedTech Global as a key sponsor for the show. MedTech help GPs be GPs by working with clinicians in Australia and New Zealand to develop patient management systems and healthcare technology. MedTech's on a mission to digitally transform general practice so GPs can focus on quality patient care. If you're a busy GP or know someone who is, check it out. The Good GP podcast on your favourite podcast player. So I made it to the uni and figure before we jump into the conversations with the guests for today, we learn a bit about Wollongong. So where else to look than the Wollongong New South Wales website. So let's, let's have a look here. So Wollongong's on Darawal country and it's one of New South Wales's largest cities. And it's right there on the website too. It's a diverse community. We've got an innovative startup scene. It's got a population of 214,657 people. The workers age population, so age 15 to 64, is 64% of people are aged between 15 and 64. Can we find about health here? Number of people with a disability, 36,600 people. So that's 17% of people have a disability. That's back in 2018, this was measured. Uh, 12,000 people with profound or severe core activity limitation. Nearly 11% of people have carers. And 23.3% of people are carers. 10% of people have arthritis. 8.6% of people have asthma. 3.2% cancer. 1% dementia. 5% diabetes. 4% heart disease. 1.2% kidney disease. 10% mental health conditions. 1.1%, 1.1%, stroke, 2.1%, lung conditions, and 57.9% of people have no long-term health conditions in Wollongong. 
It's got two full days of interviews and tours and looking around the facilities here at the university and the surrounds. Her conversations with people from the university and startup founders and people working in the space, healthcare providers. Let's get stuck in. So first up in this feature episode about innovation in Wollongong, I speak to Dr. Anthony Cadden. He's an orthopedic surgeon based here in Wollongong, and he's also co-founder and CTO of Health Memo. Anthony, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having us come here, Peter. Mate, you're the first conversation I've had here in Wollongong in this uh, bit of an experimental style episode about you know exploring and learning a bit more about a particular region and a really fun one to start with too about Wollongong. But before we jump into that and about what you're doing here, tell us about you and your background. I am a doctor. I'm a trained orthopedic surgeon. I've been working in Wollongong since 2009 after finishing my training. Mm -hmm. Primarily foot and ankles has been my interest, but I've always had an interest in computers since a very, like even before I started medicine, I've been involved with um, a lot of things. And so are you using both of those uh, together in the health tech space? Yes. So it's always been a bugbear with communication between doctors and patients. We're the only industry that rely, considers a fax to be the most secure form of communication, yet it's not used in any other industry. Talking to patients, it's always verbal. People forget. You're relying on phone calls, which don't get documented. You're relying on sheets of paper to provide information. And then you don't even know if someone's actually been following that out. And all this is to try and provide best care for your patient. Yet in any other industry, it doesn't work like that. So we're all a bit of a dinosaur. And I thought, is there a way of making this better? So that's what I sort of started on the pathway. Yeah. And so what does that solution look like? That solution is a cloud-based platform. It's got native apps for both the Android and iPhone for patients. And for a practice, they run off a desktop or they could even run off an iPad or mobile if they're operating out of a theater. It puts all the communications in the way of messaging, instructions, reminders of appointments in the one place instead of SMS here, email there. So it's easier for either a practice to find. And then if you're having communication with your doctor or practice, instead of trying to call, remember what they say, forget, call back, leave a message, they call you back. It's now just like any other chat program in a message thread. So it's easy to go back, easy to confirm, and then ideally less confusion, Mm -hmm. and ideally then less complications. So taking on communication in healthcare, it's a bit of a beast. I mean, there's, you know, you're a specialist, there's GPs, allied health providers, it's a pretty broad church. And there's lots of different solutions and not many of them speak to each other. Where do you kind of start when you're trying to do something and, not, not, and solve some problems and not just boil the ocean? A lot of the other solutions, um, if you're using WhatsApp, then you've got to have everyone on it. I mean, there's no central place of looking at it. If you're relying on emails, if you run a practice with a shared email account, the biggest problem is email gets looked at but doesn't action. Yeah. So issues um, there like that. A lot of the other solutions, we've got practice management software and they talk about the Argus and all these secure talking. And you think, oh, is that a way of me communicating with you as another practice? That's only if I send a letter. If I wanted to actually ask the other practice a question, I can't use Argus. So I've got to get onto the phone or send a fax or send an email. But then if you wanted that related to a patient, you then can't link that to a patient. Yeah. 
are you starting in a particular area of, of medicine and then broadening out from there, or is there users of all different types of healthcare? I've started out um, with doctors to begin with, yep. but phys- uh, I've got um, podiatrists that are aware of it, I've got physios, I've even got a psychologist that I had as um, a patient who's keen to actually take this on and she knew about it when I started trying to build it. Yeah, right. So it's not just made for a specialist Yes. Um, or a specialist doing procedures. It's been made sort of broad enough that you could apply it to any type of what I call practice. Yes. Is it a front-facing thing? So as a patient, I need to download the app to be able to use it or is it something that operates behind the scenes? What does it actually look like from a patient's perspective? From a patient's point of view, um, they're simply downloading an app onto their phone but I do have patients that go, well, I don't use my phone, so they can use their computer at home. So they don't have to have an app on their phone if they don't feel like it. COVID's made everyone comfortable putting apps onto phones Mm. and everyone's used to filling out forms and using QR codes. So the ease for a patient is not only do they then have to have an app for each practice, it's been designed so a patient has one app to then talk to every practice. Yes. So they're not having to jump around and go, well, I've got to use this one for that doctor and oh, I've got a physio, I've got to use this one over here. No, they use the one thing. Mm. And just like any messenger program, each practice or doctor is a simple individual thread so it doesn't cross over. Yeah. Do you find, like being based in Wollongong, are you finding that a lot of the users of the solution are Wollongong based and the patients are, or have you got a bit of a broad audience there? At the moment, I've been doing the final testing on my patients and they're finding the little quirks or saying, Mm. this didn't make sense here and then I'm able to have uh, changes made to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've already got a place in Townsville uh, where a surgeon colleague is uh, looking at taking it on, uh, even with the aim of having that as the communication piece between practices and his new hospital, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as interested surgeons in Victoria Western Australia, a couple in South Australia, um, and several in Sydney. How have you found that balance between being a clinician, you know, you've got surgery this afternoon, and at the same time, you know, building up this technology solution? They're two very different vehicles to drive. COVID was the um, God save for this. Mm. So, as you know, every business went quiet. So everyone had plenty of time on their hand. So this was the ideal time to actually get the process started. Mm. Um, And that's where the idea really cemented itself during that time. Mm-hmm. So I've had time to then get the majority of the stuff done. Um, and then it's sort of continuing to modify, adjust. And then looking into the future for what you're doing, are you looking at scaling out, getting more patients on, refining the platform? What's the, the immediate focus? Immediate focus this stage is having each little button doing the right thing each Mm. page showing the right information so that if you went and gave it to someone else they're not going well this bit's not working that bit's not working yeah you want to i want to have as smooth a transition as possible Mm. and make it in such a way that no one needs a manual to use it which is the problem with every other practice software they have a manual this thick to go through so making it it user-friendly for for anyone to pick up and just and just use. That's the key.
next up in this healthcare innovation episode of Talking Health Tech, we're keeping the theme of discussions with providers and I'm chatting with physiotherapist from right here in Wollongong, Beraldo Lilly. Here we go. Okay, my name's Beraldo Lilly. I'm a physiotherapist. I've been working in Wollongong for the last 30 years. As a physiotherapist? As a physiotherapist. Yeah, nice. Well, I appreciate you coming in to have a chat here about what you do. So you're, you work at a practice, a single practice? Yeah, I work in a single practice. So I have another physiotherapist that work with me and we have an exercise physiologist and massage therapist as well as part of the practice. Mm -hmm. Initially started in physiotherapy in 1991, working in the public health system mm -hmm. um, and then moved from the public health to private practice. Okay, got it. And so being here in Wollongong, predominantly seeing people who live here in Wollongong? Yeah, most of our patients are Wollongong based. Um, and, and things have changed over the time that I've practiced. I've predominantly moved from general sports physiotherapy more to an, an interest in spine and shoulder pain. Yeah. I work closely with shoulder surgeons and spine surgeons. Okay. And is that reflective of the, the demographic here in Wollongong and, and what people need? Yeah, the demographic's interesting. It's, um, there's, a, there's an older population uh, that live in Wollongong, and mm. we certainly, our practice certainly sees a, a lot of those. But there's also a young, uh, number of young people who've moved into the area, and particularly from Sydney. Uh, it has a fairly strong sporting background, and there's lots of sports uh, injuries and sports health issues as well. Yeah. I find physio at this interesting kind of cross-section where you've got the sports side, where I imagine that the needs of technology would be very much around like objective measurement down to the minutiae in terms of you know if you can get a point something percent improvement then that might result in better you know uh performance out on the on the sports field or it might you know recovery in um a day or two earlier compared to someone who just wants you know more on the um chronic healthcare side or uh, of an elderly population, it might just be about better quality of life and there's a different technology. How do you find that kind of mix between the two? Yeah, it's, a, it's a really interesting mix. As a, as a clinician, I'm keen to keep our practice up to date and use some of the latest technology. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be the sporting population that uses that technology. But certainly um, athletes, and I've worked very closely with uh, an athletic population um, being physio for the Wollongong Wolves for a number of years, and they were interested in, in, in recording data and, and having a look at injury rates so we could minimise injury rates and performance as well. And certainly some of the younger physios are probably more tech savvy than an older physio like myself. Um, and they tend to use more, um, more apps and more measurement tools. Mm. Um, I guess the outcome is always going to be a number of things. It's going to centre on, on outcomes that you achieve for patients in terms of their improving their whatever condition they've come from, whether it's pain, range of motion, function. Um, and I guess the other, um, the other thing that they're looking, uh, that we're looking for is, you know, how do we provide the best service for those patients, I mm. think. Yeah. yeah. No doubt the amount of technology that you would use in your practice now compared to back in the 90s would be a little bit different. A lot has changed. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, in, in our practice, we use a much more manual therapy hands-on approach than we do with electrotherapies. And electrotherapies are certainly, I think, have, 
diminished in, in use and that's partly reflective of the research that's been done in terms of outcome measures mm. from passive modality versus active intervention. And most of the f younger physios and, and even the older physios are now using much more exercise-based interventions than we were in the past. So, so I, I think research has driven the practice um, of how we treat patient and, and, and what we actually do. In terms of intervention, in terms of uh, innovations in, in things that we use, I think measurement tools are slightly better. Um, and certainly we have more digital in, uh, data that we can collect in, in using cameras and range of motion and things like that. Um, that's probably where I think the change has mostly occurred. And certainly some of the advertising I see in some of the journals point to that sort of mm. data collection. Yeah. yeah, a lot of focus around the data and what to do with it and how to do that effectively. I find often in a... Well, you tell me in terms of as more and more technology gets introduced, whether it's on the, you know, assessment side or also on the administration side and everything in between, do you find that it's making things more efficient and better or is it adding more complexity or is it a little bit of both sometimes? I think with any of these new technologies, it's always a little bit of both. Um, I, I think learning to use technology takes a bit of time and once you've actually spent that time and investment in it then it can be useful yeah. um, sometimes the technology requires you to do certain things that i don't think make the practice more efficient so the the design of the technology and 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 what they uh, how it's the application has been set up takes may may actually take you away from things that you do as a physio mm. so a lot of the times i use we use some technology to input data and collect data for our patients and outcomes and i just find that can be a little bit onerous and and i'm much quicker to write things down and then scan it in yeah. and have that rather than actually have to fill the actual boxes and and that information in uh, I, so so whilst it's the great ideas and you think yep i can see how this be helpful a lot of the time what ends up happening is that you don't end up treating patients if you're doing data collection right it's it's this i find it such a fascinating kind of trade-off like to that point that you want to have the most engaging experience with a patient when they're there you know in the clinic with you and so you don't want to be plugging in information into particular cells to make sure it's all pristine so that if in the event that you might need to use the data in the future you can do that it almost feels like sometimes if that came up, then you would, it would be, if you had to allocate time in terms of either spending more time with a patient or spending time afterwards in inefficiencies, it, it can, I can see why from a clinician's point of view, it can just make more sense to, you know, stick with what we've, what we've done, which is provide a more engaging experience to patients. But I guess that puts the challenge out to technology providers in, in creating a solution that allows you as a clinician to, yeah. to provide an engaging experience for a patient. Yeah, absolutely. And it certainly does. And certainly that's my experience. Um, yeah, um, you know, like when you're taking histories, for example, yeah. you can fill in cells and things like that, and you can use an iPad and, mm. and other data that things. But but what ends up happening is that you you're filling in this information while you're trying to actually take a history, while you're trying to engage with the patient by looking at them and 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 trying to look at non-visual and non-verbal cues mm. as well. So um, and sometimes I stop writing and I just listen to the patient because yeah. they want to tell me their story. They want to engage with me and let them, me understand what's happening in their their pain or injury and so if I sit there and I'm actually writing things or tapping on screens then I feel that that 
takes me away from that yeah. moment. And sometimes um, I, I need to have thought and been clarity about their pathology. Like I really need to think about what's going on with them and ask relevant questions so I can tease out mm. from their history what will actually help me do an, an assessment and then ultimately a treatment intervention. So, yeah. yeah. How much of uh, the telehealth that you would have picked up through the last few years from COVID do you think you'll continue to use in the practice? Yeah, um, some of the telehealth is really um, helpful and, and certainly I, I we'll continue to use and we'll offer it to our, our, our practice. Um, there's a number of um, interesting things that happen with telehealth. I think you can assess and certainly some of the, the literature reviews suggest that assessment uh, in terms of comparing it to in life assessment isn't that different. The, they, they think the the, uh, the validity or the, the construct validity is about between 60 to 80 percent. So it's reasonably close to what you would get in practice. Um, and certainly like for complex patients, I think you need to do a face on a face to face consultation. But there's no reason why once you've done that, that you can actually then provide a telehealth experience for them. You can mm. monitor their, their exercise program. You can touch base with them. You can do other things where you don't really need that face-to-face -face consultation yeah. and, and again the literature supports that for some conditions knee osteoarthritis pain um, functional activities that the the difference between patients coming in and providing us a telehealth isn't significantly different mm. i and thinking about telehealth you know in australia we've used telehealth before COVID, particularly for rural and remote locations where it might be difficult to get to a, a, a provider if you're in a rural or remote area. Now I can think the benefit there from, from that side of things, I can I can see the benefit from a, a busy person in the eastern suburbs of Sydney that might be in the CBD that you know will want to do a, a consultation on their lunch break. In terms of Wollongong, where we're at now, where does that kind of fit? Like what do the residents of Wollongong want in terms of telehealth or they find do, do people ask for it at your your practice or is it you know educating them and hopefully bring them along with the journey what yeah we have we have a couple of patients who actually request telehealth they yeah. said can we do a telehealth conference but the majority of patients tend to want to come in yeah. um i had a patient yesterday where i was discussing this with them and and they were assessing an acute knee injury and they sort of said to me said i i guess you couldn't really assess this without actually touching my leg and mm. and actually doing some tests and certainly that's that's true like in with some orthopedic tests you actually need to actually assess their their knee um, but having done that once you've actually assessed them and then there's no reason why you you couldn't provide ongoing treatment via telehealth method yeah yeah absolutely. and lastly then thinking about you know with the technology vendors that might be listening to the show or, or watching this and uh, you know, trying to understand the needs of allied healthcare providers or physios or, or, or clinicians uh, and technology today. If you could wave a magic wand, are there some things, some problems that you'd want to get solved using technology uh, that, that more vendors could focus on in trying to, to make things more effective for, for what you do on a day to day? It's an interesting question. I'm just trying to think what technologies that I would find helpful in our practice. Um, the most difficult thing I think in terms of service delivery at the moment is is access not so much to allied health professionals. You can get into an allied health yeah. professional pretty easily. The the things that I find very, very helpful is the ability to access data on patients. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, being able to do um, access x-rays online 
has been extremely helpful because I can then look at the images and and those sort of things. So just assessment, diagnostics assessments, tools are very, very helpful. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, most of the stuff that we, the products we have now are more recording data and for patient entry information. Mm. Um, I've tried cameras in terms of looking at collecting things for range of motion Mm. and spinal range of movement, but I don't find that significantly better than just actually eyeballing and writing it down yeah yeah it's it's solving for problems right that's uh and, and if there's a problem to be solved and they can do that kind of and the technology working in the background as opposed to you know enforcing how you do a, a consultation that's um that's got to be a good thing anything else any final thoughts or um, things to close out the conversation particularly focusing on healthcare technology innovation in, well, in Wollongong? Some of the interesting things is uh, virtual reality. I mean, there have mm. been some some uh, studies that have actually shown that for pain and function, virtual reality actually works quite well. And in fact, some of the, some of the outcome measures for non-specific low back pain and for function using virtual reality have been suggestive that it's actually as equal to just doing our, our therapy as well. Mm. So maybe that's in a space that people can start to look at. Certainly wearable technology is the other area that um, that's coming along. Um, monitoring range of motion, monitoring function. There are some wearable clothes that you can actually have sensors on now so that you can actually, they can measure range of movement, performance of activity. Uh, uh, those sort of aspects may be quite interesting in the future. Yeah, definitely want to watch. Yeah. The Talking Health Tech podcast has been running since 2018 with over 400 episodes and no signs of slowing down. It's all possible thanks to the support of our THT Plus members. These are startup and scale-up members who get it. They know that collaboration starts with a conversation. And they know that to make meaningful change in healthcare, we need to break down those silos one conversation at a time. We love to feature our THT Plus startup and scale-up company members on this podcast, so you'll hear from them regularly if you listen to this show. And you'll also see they have a strong presence on our SEO-optimized website. THT Plus members can... Share unlimited content on our website too, like news events and jobs, which we then redistribute across our wider audience through our socials and our newsletter. If you're interested in being part of the conversation, become a THT Plus member today so we can get the word out about the most important topics in healthcare together. Go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT Plus to learn more. Next up in this episode, I speak to Maddie Redpath. He's the director of health at Ericom. Ericom are THT Plus members, and they do a lot of work in the corrections and the aged care space, but more and more in healthcare. Here we go. Matt, thanks for having a chat with me down by the water feature. We just realized we've got a bit of a, a zen kind of moment here. So what better person to have here for, uh, for this chat? Thanks for making the time. Yeah, no, that's all good, mate. Yeah, and so uh, it's it's great to be able to chat with you. Tell us a bit about you and what you do. I've got a couple of roles. Um, one's uh, they call me the director of health in the company, um, but the really what I do is a solutions architect. Yeah. So um, that's what I love doing: playing with technology, um, solving solutions. Yeah. So yeah. And this is and tell us about the company. Tell us about Ericom. Ericom. Um, yeah, we've got about just over a hundred awesome people now yeah. uh, working for us. So um, we've grown a lot over the last eight years, sort of, you know, around 30 people up to over a hundred now. So 
got a few different offices. So we're at, you know, um, Sydney, Melbourne and Wollongong. Mm-hmm. So, um, our executive director teams all have Wollongong. So, yeah, yeah. So it's a Wollongong, uh, base company. So you've got all the three different offices. How do you kind of talk about the different head offices? Depends who we're talking to. Yeah, right. Yeah, it really <laughs> does. So yeah. obviously, um, being a Wollongong boy, um, you know, we're a little bit regional. Um, we do a lot in health sort of out one day, you know, we might be in Dubbo mm. or down the south, south coast. Um, if we're talking to, I say head executives and, um, other larger companies, you yeah. know, we'll be working out of Sydney. So yeah. it's good to be able to have that reach. Cause it'd be quite a different, um, I imagine it's quite different working with clients who would benefit from working with you in Sydney near the CBD versus working here in Wollongong, right? Is there a bit of a mix there? Uh, there is, there is, there's different, um, obviously head offices are all out of normally capital cities, yeah. so Sydney or Melbourne, but, um, a lot of the, the smaller organizations and the, I guess the people we love to play with, you know, they're, they're regional, they've mm. got small offices, but they might be, you know, spread out around the country. And talk to me about the problems that you're solving for, for these clients. They, they definitely vary. Um, some of the exciting ones, I guess, deaths in custody. Um, in the correction system. So that's a, that's a big one at the moment. Um, it's exciting because we can actually maybe make a difference here yeah. like, and use the technology where not a lot of tech's gone into the prison system in a long time. And, and what kind of technology are you putting into the prison system? Wireless, um, or radar. So that picks up heart rate and breathing. Oh. So yeah, non, a non-wearable, obviously we're in an environment where you can't sort of yeah. strap bits and pieces onto people. Um, yeah, we're monitoring remotely sort of heart rate and breathing of different inmates. And so then that gets centralized within the prison system to like a medical team. Is that how it works? That's where it will be going. So it's very early stages. Yeah. Um, yeah, at the moment. Yes. And then we'll move on to predictive sort of analysis of that data as well. Yeah. Is that a, like new emerging innovative technology in the space or is that common sense? I'm not, I'm not familiar with, uh, healthcare in the uh, corrections uh, it is, it is. So they, yeah, obviously, um, health's anywhere is the same. So, you know, people have issues and, um, you know, some of our people in, um, corrections obviously come from, a uh, maybe a drug or alcohol sort of fueled behavior as well. But, um, yeah, we're all the same humans. They've got the same issues we do on the outside, but yeah. yeah. But obviously they don't have the reach to go down, walk, stroll down to the doctor and so with Ericom, is there different types of solutions or is that kind of remote monitoring piece the, the, the main bits and pieces? How do you talk about the, I guess, the, all the stuff that you do with technology? Yeah, well, it comes down to um, listening, really. Like, that's just one little piece. Yeah. Um, it's about getting in there, having a chat to people, what's the real issue here, and understanding what you can deliver with the technology. So we'll go around, research it. And we have partners like all over the place and, and we'll put together a solution and go back and say, this is what we can do to save you, you know, time here or a fall detection for somebody or, or like, um, this predictive, um, technology now is going to save, um, hopefully people's time, but also be able to analyze and, and give people actual, a, um, predictive health, being able to predict something happening before it's actually been identified by the person or yeah. by, you know, staff going around and taking measurements or, um, doing the OBS. I imagine that's really helpful in an aged care setting. Aged care, definitely. Um, and that's 
primarily where sort of my background is. Yep. Um, so yeah, falls, um, huge one and I guess predictive health, um, issues, just been able to analyze people's, um, breathing and heart rate, um, over, you know, over a bit of time mm. and then being able to say, you know, we can see a change in this and this is what this could be, look, we could be looking at. They've been able to do UTIs, um, obviously COVID and some other things early now mm. using this technology. So it's been pretty exciting. I imagine it would be exciting, but also a challenge being a provider who's pulling together different partners or looking to solve problems in, I guess, in a way bespoke solutions or, or quite, um, you know, holding hands with a client through the process as opposed to saying, here's our thing. And then, you know, it costs this much a month and away you go. So I imagine relationship building and understanding the clients is where you'd spend a lot of your time and, and effort in, in trying to um, really know where you can add some value. Is that how you think about it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, so you've got to be be on the journey with the client and then also your partners and make mm. sure everyone's aiming for the same goal and uh, be confident that, you know, you've got the right people working with you to deliver at the end. So now make sure that's ticked off. Like I, I see so many solutions going out and um, these like proof of concepts and trials, they just go nowhere because mm. there's not the right team behind it, which is, I think it's the most important part. Is there plant being you know you mentioned you've got quite a background in the aged care space but there'd be a lot of application of what you're talking about in more of the acute setting in healthcare in hospital space is that where things are going yeah definitely definitely and like every hospital you know it has the same issue at the moment you know it's staff funding um you know predictive health in that setting could be massive and could mm. save time and um might also allow for people to actually go home, you know, this hospital at home is a huge thing as well. Yep. So this, these tools are now going to be available for people at home and, mm. and the predictive side of it will allow, you know, someone to actually remote measure and maybe some of this AI, real AI coming into yeah. play, we'll be able to spit some, um, yeah, analysis out and allow the doctors, you know, to really have a look at that and go, okay, we can see what's happening here. We know, you know, and they don't need to sit in a hospital bed or you know, all come in to see them. They can do it all remotely. It's such an interesting space, the predictive uh, finding issues before they arise, because we're very good in healthcare at treating people once they're sick, because that's how things are funded. And that's how doctors get paid is, you know, treating people when they're sick, but there's a lot of benefit in uh, addressing issues before they arise. I feel like over a it's something that at a, at a systems level we need to get better at in terms of supporting through the healthcare structure of, you know, uh, incentivizing these kinds of technologies or approaches to healthcare to, to prevent issues before they arise, for sure. Yeah, understanding the real data. Like, yeah, yeah knowing, knowing what you're seeing and then what to do with it. And I think um, more companies out there probably need to work together because they, they're all sort of I guess, aiming towards the same thing now, mm. but they're collecting data from different sources. Yeah. You know, it'd be great to see these people get together and really like, you know, have one system that feeds this all into and, and we really can like make a difference really quick with the data that's gathered, you know. Yeah. Well, once you've got the data, you can, you can make more informed decisions and uh, you can measure and build from there. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Just changing gears slightly because this episode, this, this time that I'm spending here is in Wollongong, understanding the innovations coming from 
Wollongong, but also the healthcare needs of people from within the space as well. You mentioned you're a, you've been a Wollongong boy your whole life. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, yeah, so I've been working out of Wollongong for 25, 26 years now. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So just, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, in the same technology space with the same crew, really. So mm, yeah, yeah, it's been great. How have you found it in terms of the demographic? Because, you know, in, in, the, in the guests I've been speaking with, there's this interesting mix of, you know, there's an older population that certainly exists, but also there's a lot of younger professionals that are, uh, increasingly working within Wollongong. Some could argue that, you know, through COVID as people found the ability to work remotely or be connected more with different, um, capital cities, I imagine compared to, you know, 10, 20 years ago where you might feel like you're quite far away being in Wollongong, uh, these days, I imagine it's quite plugged into the rest of the ecosystem. A lot of innovation comes from. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And uh, yeah, we've had the same thing. Our staff are now scattered throughout Australia. You know, we've got guys in Perth, in Queensland, Mm. um, you can jump on a computer whenever, jump in and, yeah. and be part of something, you know, and yeah. get, yeah. So, no, nah, it's definitely changed. Wollongong's um, definitely, like, it's grown up with the rest of, you know, mm. the world as well. But um, it has been a space people I've noticed from Sydney yeah. where they used to, you know, travel every day or, you know, they used to live up that way. They've found, you know, Wollongong is a beautiful place to live now and, and they've come down and they just want to chill out and join yeah. us on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, before we go chill out on the beach, what, what, what are you excited about the future? And, you know, we're into 2023 now, uh, whether for Ericom or, or, or more broadly in health, what's, what's the focus? What's, um, what do you, what have you got your eye on? It's going to be working with some larger companies this year and also doing some collab stuff with the guys in the union themselves. Oh, yeah. So we're actually, um, teaming up with a, a crew here to actually do some, I'll call it AI, but. It's really, um, I hate that word AI. Um, we're, we're doing some work on solutions where they're the experts in the research and some of these other fields. Mm. We've got some hardware, we've got a solution that we need fixed and we probably need some white papers and some proper, yeah. I guess, kit at the end of what we're doing. Matty, thanks so much for your time. No, thank you. Next up, I speak to Evangelist Pappas from right here in the university. He's Associate Dean and a professor at University of Wollongong. We talk about innovation and healthcare here in the Gong. Let's go. Let's start introducing yourself. Tell us who you are and, and what you do. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, welcome to the University of Wollongong. Uh, and Thank thanks you. for the opportunity today. Um, so my name is Evangelist Pappas. Um, so in terms of my bio, in 45 seconds, uh, I was trained as a physiotherapist in Greece a long time ago, and both my clinical and research interests are in the prevention and treatment of uh, ACL injuries, uh, anterior cruciate ligament injuries of the knee that happen in uh, some sports like basketball, soccer, and so on and so forth. Um, I have a PhD from New York University in orthopedic biomechanics. Um, and I've been an academic for almost 20 years now, having taught at Long Island University, uh, University of Sydney. And for the last two years, I am at the University of Wollongong, uh, where in addition to uh, uh, the work that I do in teaching and research, uh, I also work on the development of a health and well-being precinct at the Innovation Campus that you will visit later today. Uh, and you will see the, uh, where that will uh, uh, be built in the next few years. But we're here today to talk about health technology and uh, what is happening at the University of Wollongong in this space. Absolutely. So I appreciate you making the time to have a chat because, you know, being here at the university, it feels like this is 
a lot of the innovation is born, but also continues to, to grow as well. You know, I was looking on the, the, the Wollongong Council website, innovation is front and center when people talk about, about Wollongong. So, and there's the Innovation Hub. Talk to me about innovation and healthcare and, and what's happening here at the University of Wollongong. So as I said, you know, I joined the University of Wollongong almost two years ago, and it is an excellent place in terms of innovation. Again, there is a long tradition of um, uh, innovative uh, research that makes its way into the healthcare system. And I know you'll be speaking to a few other academics uh, and researchers uh, uh, in, in the next couple of days. So let me tell you a little bit about the work that we do, uh, but also how, you know, some of the unique opportunities that exist in the Illawarra, you know, and the University of Wollongong. So maybe we can separate into two lines of research. So the first one, as I said, is around the sports injuries and how we uh, prevent those injuries and treat the athletes who uh, uh, inevitably get them. As I said, my PhD is in uh, orthopedic biomechanics. So for the last 20 years, you know, I've been uh, working on the intersection of uh, engineering and technology and what tools we use to capture the way people move. And that is something that humans have had an in have an interest for thousands of years. You know, uh, how do we move? Uh, and what does this mean in terms of pathology, but also aesthetics and so on and so forth. Um, it has only been in the last few years that there is a revolution, just like with a lot of other aspects of technology and, uh, and health, uh, in the way we uh, can capture um, uh, more human motion in uh, more efficient ways. So we just got a few months ago, we got uh, a, 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 a motion capture system that is uh, markerless. So traditionally, you know, it's a very time-consuming process to bring people into the biomechanics lab. It's only in recent years that technology has evolved to that point. And, and, and of course, with artificial intelligence evolving so rapidly, uh, that is a, a rapidly growing area where we can uh, capture uh, the way people move in a more natural environment and much faster. Um, uh, and that creates a lot of opportunities for research. Uh, Particularly in my area, I work with people like Matt Whalen, uh, who's a, a local physiotherapist here, but also the physiotherapist of the Socceroos, uh, as well as other academics at the University of Wollongong and uh, some collaborators like Kerry Peake and Marnie Mackay at the University of Sydney, where we look at uh, ways to prevent sports injuries by utilizing this motion capture technology in order to identify who may be at high risk yeah. uh, at the beginning of the season. And then um, the good thing about sports injuries like the, those that involve the anterior cruciate ligament is that um, there are injury prevention programs that are effective. Uh, it's just a matter of finding ways to uh, make them part of the routine, of the training routine, that then they can help uh, athletes uh, 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 decrease the, the risk of injury. Um, so this is one very exciting area of research. It's interesting that you, you bring that up too, because from, from some of the previous conversations we've already had here, you know, it, it's been with those on the front line that are utilizing technology, but the most effective technology they use in their practice as a physio isn't so much something that requires them to spend less time with a patient or, or inputting a lot of you know information. It's, you know, the, the best ones work um, seamlessly behind the scenes. And when you talk about, you know, markerless technology, that seems like a great example, a lot less work up front. And it's something that you can measure someone in their own kind of environment. And, uh, you know, there's, that, that puts, really puts the challenge out there to, you know, innovators and technology vendors, uh, to, to continue to look for ways to create technology that, that works kind of behind the scenes to, to allow some of this, this care to happen. Oh yeah. It has to be something that is unobtrusive and it has to be something that does not take too much time out of, uh, the time that clinicians spend on the other aspects of it. 
which, you know, is a, is a good segue to uh, the next uh, area of research that I've been working here. You know, again, the University of Wollongong has a long tradition of innovation, engineering, and health technology. Um, and when I arrived two years ago, there was this great opportunity to look at ways where we can capture the physical activity and heart rate measures that, you know, we all somehow you know, either have a Fitbit or some other device and ordering or, or even smartphones can capture a lot of the physical, like the step counts, mm. for example, yet you go to the, to the GP and physical activity is one of the most important things that, uh, uh should be assessed, uh, in terms of disease prevention and, and uh, outcomes and so on and so forth. Yet rarely do uh, GPs uh, um, access this wealth of data that is captured with these wearable devices that, that many people have. So again, you know, talking about unobtrusive waves, you know, that that's something that uh, a lot of people have uh, spent the money to buy these devices um, and, and they check on their app, uh, but it would be, the, or, or, or we think uh, it will be, that's our proposal, that it is, uh, we have to find ways to present this data to GPs, of course, assuming that uh, for, for those patients who agree to share this data and then present it to them in ways that are, are quick uh, and very informative. So I've been working with uh, people like uh, Ken Wynn and Cormac Fay and, uh, and Yourcell Alici at the uh, School of Engineering um, to develop ways that we can uh, and also work with some of the uh, health tech giants to find ways that we can uh, seamlessly uh, facilitate this process. That's very exciting. You know, we really think it's a game changer in primary care environments. Um, we also have collaborations here, and, and, and that's one of the good things in Wollongong that is uh, big enough that there is a lot of research happening. There is a world-class university um, uh, and, and a lot of passion towards uh, uh, health technology, but at the same time, it's small enough that you can easily make the connections uh, uh, and... Uh, and uh, and, and do things at scale that is more difficult in some of the previous places that I work, such as New York and, and Sydney, which, you know, again, uh, in addition to the university and the research groups that work here, you know, one unique thing about the Illawarra is that uh, uh, people, you know, don't, don't move out a lot. And when they move to other parts of the world, they, they frequently come back. So I had a discussion recently with a very accomplished academic here who has been here for you know, 25 years or so. And I asked him, you know, did you ever consider of moving to another university or another part of the world? And he said, yeah, and I did, you know, sabbaticals there, but I always want to come back here because, you know, there is the access to the, to the ocean and uh, the, the natural beauty of the place, but um, also, you know, being close to Sydney. Um, now, if you could combine this with uh, what the local health district does, so they do have databases. And again, that is quite unique um, that passively capture a lot of the healthcare outcomes. Um, so when you go to the innovation campus tomorrow or, or later today, uh, you will see one of the research centers there is uh, CRISP, and that is from the uh, Illawarra Shoalhaven Local Health District mm -hmm. that passively captures a lot of the um, data that is generated within the healthcare system. So again, that's a dream down the road, uh, Peter, but you know, and, and we're, we're certainly uh, quite a few years away from that. That my hope is that a lot of the uh, wearable data that is passively captured will be fine, you know, eventually linked um, with all the proper uh, measures in place in terms of ethics and confidentiality and so on and so forth will be linked with the local health district uh, data outcomes. And again, that will be a very unique thing, uh, research project to do worldwide. There's a few examples there that you've given that are really 
uh, promising where, you know, this isn't just research in academia kind of, you know, looking at things that conceptually could potentially be something. It's, you know, working with the the local health districts and working with the vendors and the real world. So it's finding that balance between, yes, doing, making sure that the um, robust research and the ethics and all of that, which is really important in healthcare, is there. However, it needs to be practical and and applicable to to real world situations. So it sounds like that's very much front of mind with with what. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that is the advantage here that you know there's one university, the University of Wollongong, mm-hmm. one primary health network coordinator, one local health district. Um, so that uh, you know uh, allows us to uh, work and collaborate. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that for us as academics and researchers, that's important because. We need to identify the problem first. You know, we don't want to go down the rabbit hole where we try to solve a problem that then, you know, cannot be implemented into the healthcare system. So we really have to think with the end in mind. Yes, absolutely. And last thing about the the future then for innovation, particularly coming out of, of Wollongong in, in healthcare, what have you got your eyes on? What's what's on the horizon? What's going to be your priorities over the next, you know, 6, 12, 24 yeah, so we, we're moving these projects forward. Again, you know, a lot of exciting research happening with the uh, THEA system that we got, the Artificial Intelligence Markerless Motion Capture System. We have a lot of um, uh, really good pro- projects in mind uh, in terms of sports injury prevention and rehabilitation. Um, we do have a, a very good collaboration, uh, again, at its infancy, but uh, very promising with the Wollongong Foot and Ankle Center. Uh, here, you know, again, you know, uh, um, uh, a, a lot of patients with uh, lower extremity problems are being treated there. So we have uh, quite a few projects that we're hoping to, to, to we're hoping to get off the ground uh, uh, this year. Um, and again, you know, the collaboration we have with the local health district uh, and um, how we can implement and integrate physical activity and heart rate data that is captured continuously and unobtrusively by wearable devices that are you know, advancing very rapidly uh, and how we can make sure that this is uh, taken into consideration uh, during uh, our primary care visits. So we do hope, you know, we're pursuing funding as academics uh, frequently do and frequently fail, uh, but <laughs> we are uh, um, uh, optimistic that... Uh, You've got to be uh, in it to win it, that's right? right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. Anything else? Any other final comments or thoughts or, or things? No, I... just again, you know, thank you for the opportunity today. I really hope you have a great uh, couple of days uh, in Wollongong and you get to visit us uh, back uh, soon. And maybe yeah. next year we can talk about some of the outcomes of this project. Sure, yeah, absolutely. You put on the good weather for it as well too. Love it. Thank you. Next up, I speak to Leo Stevens from the university, and his role is to build partnerships, bring different people together, which is what Talking Health Tech is all about, but also this episode about bringing different stakeholders together within Wollongong. And in my discussion with Leo, we'll touch on bringing together both the research uh, and R&D side of things uh, across to the commercialising and the making it happen. So how to, how to go about that and what they're doing here in Wollongong to make it happen. Hey Leo, how are you? Great, thanks Pete. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me and thanks for finding a great spot. Another great spot to record here at the uni. It's um, awesome to be uh, here on campus, but talk to me firstly about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I work for both the university and for a separate company called Eon Labs. Uh, with the university, I support our researchers to uh, interact with the industry, to develop commercial research projects and to work collaboratively on those. 
I'm also part of a team that works on our university's commercialization and IP portfolio. So looking at spin-out companies and how the university can make the most of the discoveries that it makes. Got it. I'm setting you up a little bit here, but you've got a good pod, podcast voice. Uh, you do a podcast as well. Thanks for that plug, Pete. Uh, yeah, so the, the podcast that I host is called Lab Notes, and it's all around the science commercialization journey. So everything from researchers who want to become entrepreneurs to the venture capital companies who support them, uh, and to the, indeed, university commercialization offices like the one that I work for who are helping the researchers make those connections and build up their skill sets towards becoming entrepreneurs and running companies based on their discoveries. Interesting you say that because that, that uh, thinking about this episode of the podcast of Talking Health Tech, where we're focusing on innovation uh, in healthcare, particularly in and around the Wollongong area and being at the university, I feel like we're at the heart of that sometimes. But it, what's really important to that I feel like is taking uh, research and ideas and, and you know, really great insights uh, that come from resources like this and the people at the university but actually commercializing them and, and turning them into something. So you're kind of at this point of seeing a little bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the brilliant things about universities and about the researchers that work in them is they get a great deal of time and resources to build up really deep knowledge in all of these fields. So at the University of Wollongong, there's there's people who research on, on IoT devices and wearable sensors. There's others who do uh, work around disease modeling and individual molecular science. And collectively, all of these discoveries, all of this research knowledge builds up to a point where there really are fantastic opportunities to then either start a company based on that research or work with an existing incumbent like a pharmaceutical company to, to develop that into a, a treatment or, or a new, uh, new pharmaceutical. So there, there are fantastic opportunities there. And part of our job at the commercialization unit is to identify those to help researchers build the connections, but also the skills that they need to be able to take that journey. And mm. some researchers wanted to take an entrepreneurial path and kind of be on that journey themselves. And others are just very happy to see their discovery and their skills translated into real world products by working with existing industry partners. What do you find is the general vibe? Because I know many who want to work behind the scenes and come up with great solutions, but, but the, the concept of, of actually commercializing it doesn't appeal to them, whereas others want to do the whole kind of picture, but sometimes, well, they are two very different vehicles to drive. Do you find sometimes it's about bringing in somebody else to run the business side and commercialize, or sometimes it just depends? Yeah, I think there's not a simple answer to this question, but I can say the culture around Australia has been changing in the last couple mm. of decades. There's been an increasing interest and drive from universities and from government and indeed from the, the investor space an acceptance of the entrepreneurial pathway. I think more university researchers and indeed students are considering entrepreneurship as a pathway. Uh, the government is is pushing researchers to consider industry partnerships as a, as a greater proportion of their research load as opposed to the traditional models of just relying on ARC or NHMRC funding. Yeah. Uh, in, in all these ways, there has been a, a growing ecosystem for uh, research commercialization, for knowledge exchange and for entrepreneurship in Australia. To get onto your specific question about you know which projects go down the entrepreneurial path and which go down the licensing path or the working you know collaboratively with industry path, it definitely depends on the individual researchers and the work they're doing. I think for a lot of drug development and pharmaceutical programs, it tends to be a licensing path. The reason for that is you kind of need the scale of but big pharma to ultimately take those to market. Sometimes people go through the kind of preclinical phase. Uh, and, and do some animal studies and things as an entrepreneurial spin-up, but ultimately 
it's proven successful. I'll get bought out and I'll end up in the, in the mm. system of big pharma. Um, for other things like smart devices and IoT, for wearables monitoring, there's definitely been cases of successful companies that have started from, from university research and are now growing into, you know, the incumbents themselves. So, mm. I mean, the, the classic examples from Australia are ResMed and Cochlear, yeah. but there's also more modern things like Emotive out in Northern Sydney, which is doing uh, EEG monitoring. Uh, and, and there's a bunch of companies that are, that are coming out of universities all around Australia that, that are starting to take that journey the whole way to being the company that serves their patients and serves clients at the end of the day. That's really important because I think about when, when I started talking health tech as, as the podcast back end of 2018, a, b- a big driver for doing that was, you know, this big problem that it feels like we've still got now where Australia, we're very good at, at discovering things or supporting the research side, but collectively stroking a broad brush, we're not great at keeping it and then kind of deliver We're very good at being a customer of other, uh, other countries of their solutions that might have commercialized in this space, whether that's a product of just the size and the demographic of Australia being kind of this in-between of, you know, it's not the size of the US, but it's still quite big. It's kind of, but we're in this kind of middle range of enough regulatory, but you might be able to get something going, but it's still that point that you raised around the need for um, funding support, the who's going to pay for it. It sounds like those types of, like we're shifting, as you suggested, towards a model where it's a bit more accepted to take that entrepreneurial path. And hopefully we can um, see more innovations actually come out of Australia, but also support those that are creating, discovering, researching on the academia side to, to encourage them to stay in Australia and, you know, after they've completed studies or anything and not feel like there's better opportunities overseas. And um, perhaps with the supports of, you know, um, facilities like uh, the university, Wollongong and others too, that it's it's an enticing place to say in this innovation style hub where we've still got really good research as well as opportunity for commercialization too. Yeah, there's, I guess, a lot of aspects to that question. I'll, I'll try and unpick some of them, but... I don't even think it was a question, was it? It was me rambling for a couple of minutes, but that's not... <laughs> I'm interested in your thoughts based on my rambling. Yeah, look, I think the the one thing is definitely that the ecosystem is growing and it, it really is a situation where it takes a village. You know, it's not enough to have one university who's keen on commercialization. It's not enough to have a government who puts a couple of translation research grants in. It's not enough to just have an angel investment group that's interested in it. You kind of need all of these things to line up. And indeed, the VC funds and the links to incumbent industry all contribute to this this journey. Mm. I think one thing that's, you know, it, it's not always appreciated, it certainly is by the people who've done the journey, is, is the importance of mentors and the importance of that guidance from somebody who's done it before. And that's the thing that only comes with time. You know, it, it builds slowly because it takes someone, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe 20 to do a, a deep tech, mm. uh, med tech kind of startup. And only at the end of that journey, are they ready to mentor the next one? Yeah. So that that is, I think, a big driver of why it's slow to get this wheel turning for for deep tech, med tech commercialization in Australia. But it is happening. And if you talk to people who were in the space 20 years ago, one of my recent podcast guests uh, did a project through the Comet scheme which again, probably wrapped up in the, in the 2000s. And it was intended to help uh, researchers commercialize. And the idea was that they would get their ideas picked up by venture capital funds. But the Australian venture capital industry just wasn't there to pick mm. up a lot of these ideas. So the government funded a bunch of Comet projects, but most of them didn't succeed in the way that was intended because there wasn't that next step in the chain. Um, so all of those things have been growing over the last few decades. And I think you look at groups like like Sydney Angels or VC funds like Uniseed. Um, there, there's plenty of university SA ventures. There was the ANU Connect ventures. Uh, there, there's a lot of these groups that 
are adding to this ecosystem. Mm. And, and more and more, the pathway from research to entrepreneur is getting easier. The number of mentors is growing. The number of support structures is increasing. And I think it's a good time for researchers to really consider this as a viable pathway and to take on the training opportunities that are being offered through the likes of Cicada, through the Bridge Tech program. There's a lot of opportunities there to, to dip your feet in and understand what it takes. It's a reassuring message as well, particularly, you know, this year in 2023, where the general sentiment across business overall is, you know, in rising inflation or um, uh, coming off the back of uh, a lot of growth and acceptance around technology and healthcare specifically. Now we're kind of in this leveling out and stage and, and it might not necessarily be the first kind of place to go in thinking, well, let's double down and invest more in terms of uh, innovation and growth. But, you know, that, that's our way out of these types of things. And there's a little bit of trust the process and give it patience and time too, because we've seen it looking back over the last 10, 20 years, that, that time and effort, and that is starting to pay off now. But it must be exciting to look forward to the next 10, 20 years as well. Yeah, I think if you come from an academic environment, if you are one of those research entrepreneurs, you kind of have to look past the current macroeconomic cycle because it's going to be 5, 10, 15 years before you're in market, before you're actually selling. So it almost doesn't matter what the current situation is. The, the only exception to that is the availability of funding. So when you're talking about what are VC funds doing at the moment, what are the valuations that are being offered to tech businesses, and equally, you know, are the industry incumbents, the pharmaceutical companies, investing in early stage companies at this point in time? Are they ready to do collaborative research? So I think you, you do have to think about what funding is going to be available for your research and development phase and your growth phase, but you don't necessarily have to be thinking about the, the client side and the, the customer payment model yet because most of these deep tech projects take five or 10 years to get to fruition. You will need to ask those questions eventually. You probably need to set up your business model that will work for the long term, uh, but you, you won't be profitable in the short term, no matter what the macroeconomic environment looks like. That makes so much sense. So much sense. Um, any other final thoughts? Well, I've got you. It's great to have you know you with your um, background and interests and, and bring, bringing both sides of the research and commercialization together here in Wollongong. As we focus on on this as a, a particular area and think about innovation and healthcare in Wollongong, any other final thoughts or contributions you want to make to the episode? Yeah, I guess putting on my, my University of Wollongong hat, we would invite industry partners to collaborate with the university, particularly SMEs, but also the, the larger companies around some of UOW's areas of expertise. Mm. And that is around you know wearables and IoT device monitoring, uh, around molecular science and material science in particular for uh, the biotech space. And then finally, it's also around the, the kind of animal models and clinical trials, where the University of Wollongong has really good connections with our local health district and has for a long time had a pathway through which those kind of clinical phase work can be conducted within our research institutes here. There's fantastic work going on around uh, MND, around antimicrobial resistance, uh, and a lot of kind of big challenges in the, the biotech space for Australia and the world. Biotech always gives us a lot of opportunities to add more to the health, Talking Health Tech glossary, so we'll, we'll have to check that out. But Leo, we'll put the details for your uh, podcast in the show notes of this episode for people to get in touch as well generally and, and discuss more. Thanks so much for making the time today. Absolutely, Pete. It's been fantastic. Thanks for having me. So next up, I jumped on this bus in Wollongong 
There's a bus that's for free and it takes you around in the circle, which is pretty cool. You wouldn't get that in Sydney. But I went across to the innovation campus of the university to iAccelerate, Accelerate, and I got to speak to April Creed. She's been on the podcast before, but it's been a few years and she's based here in Wollongong. So we'll learn more about it. Let's go. April, how are you going? I'm well, thank you, Pete. How are you? <laughs> Good. Thanks so much for having me inside from the heat. We've been outside to record most of the sessions today. It's a great day in Wollongong, but we're here in the the, the I Accelerate building. Is that right? That's correct. The um, the University of Wollongong I Accelerator um, campus, which yeah. is the um, incubator for startups within Wollongong. Yeah. So, because I jumped on the bus to come from the main campus over to here, so this is the innovation campus, right? And then I Accelerates within that there. And is it like, so it's a co-working space that's supporting other, because I've got a conversation as well with, with Tam tomorrow about the iAccelerate as well, but she's based here, is that right? Absolutely. And, um, and Tam's based here mostly, although she's got connections with our, both the main campus and this, this campus as well. So. Well, the last time we spoke was, I can't remember, it was a while ago, we'll have to put the details for, for that episode where we did a dedicated episode of uh, Talking Health Tech with uh, yourself and Beck talking about Exitu, but I feel like it's been a while. What's been keeping you busy? And so you're doing this episode uh, focused on uh, innovation from and about Wollongong. Um, you're obviously based in Wollongong, so it's great to have you back on the show again. <laughs> um, what's been happening since last time we spoke? And we love Wollongong, yes. <laughs> I must say. So we last spoke, I think it must have been in about 2019 um, or 20, so it's been some years. We've been working really strongly um, on our advanced care planning software as a service, um, which really puts people's values at the centre of the document and helps people make decisions that support the person's will and preference should they ever be able to or not be able to communicate for themselves. We've really definitely grown that. It still exists and it's really strong, um, but we've really moved into the rights-based care movement. So helping supported decision-making um, become used when yeah. caring for someone else by giving people a set of values about the person that they care about, a roadmap mm -hmm. to help instruct further decision-making to really ensure that that person's voice is always heard. Yeah. So this is, you know, when uh, someone who's being cared for, you know, everyone's got their own preferences, values, things that are important to them, but sometimes you're not in a position to be able to communicate those, particularly if you're undergoing care or treatment or at the, the final stages of life. So this is the space that we're operating. It really kind of um, can be sensitive sometimes, but difficult to navigate. And, and I assume create a lot of concern for, I guess, the person being cared for, but carers as well and those the, the loved ones of someone receiving care. Yeah, that's a, it's a huge gulf in um, where we need to be and what we're doing mm. right now. So I'm talking not just in aged care, but also anybody with some kind of cognitive decline or disability, often the way we communicate with those people or we assess them, they're really not very nice ways of supporting a person that may be feeling frightened or confused. So we've developed a way that really is cognitively soft and supports anyone with a disability to adequately express themselves in a way that makes them feel comfortable and then produces documents that can be used to support that person and strengthen their voice no mm. matter what. Yeah. So that's where it's different. And from memory, from the last conversation we had, it was, it was like it was like a card-based system, is that right? But using technology? What? Yeah, so it's a, it's a cloud-based card sorting mm -hmm. app. So we, we're on the cloud. You just click and drag some cards across the screen and it helps you talk about what you really, really value. And they're not scary subjects. They're really broad mm -hmm. and they encourage you to really put 
in your own words, your own vernacular, believable, sound, understandable guidance for the future. And so since we last spoke, uh, I, I don't recall where, where we were at last time, but the last couple of years, I guess through through COVID, coming back the other side, what's been, uh, talk to me a bit more about some of those things that have been built on since we, we last spoke on the show. Well, COVID was a, a really interesting time because um, we were, we're still really well placed in the aged care sector, but the aged care providers were really not able to bring in new new things or have people come in because of the threat of infection. So we use that time to really, really work on the user interface and the user experience of our app, and we complete, completely changed it so that it went from what 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 we thought was quite nice to something quite beautiful right now. And then we also really have been working solidly with many people in the sector that uh, support carers, um, rights-based groups, and also some lawyers and really building that relationship so that we could broaden our reach. Mm-hmm. And, and since, since then, we've actually really um, developed some key partnerships with those people to, to bring rights-based care to the fore. It's interesting you mentioned broadening out to other, I guess, stakeholders that, that play part in that outside of healthcare. You mentioned lawyers, is that right? How does that, how does that work? How does that tie in? Well, one of the things that people often assume when they need an advanced care plan is that they, they, they say, oh, I should have been offered this when I did my will in my estate. And so obviously that's a really beautiful place to have that put. But on the flip side, um, lawyers need to be able to show in financial planners that they've really considered the person's values, that they understand the person's goals, needs and preferences, that they just haven't written out a script for the person. Because often that can be indefensible when things go wrong. So by using Exitu and really understanding or showing that they understand people and they've really discovered the person, it gives strength to their documents. And it prevents constituted um, or people fighting over what is or isn't true moving forward. You've continued to grow and expand out the the stakeholders that that are utilising the platform. So has the platform evolved? For you mentioned before, the platform's evolved into something a bit more robust now. It's always been robust. It's just that we hadn't we hadn't explored as many channels that yeah. it was applicable to. And it's been really um, a great fit for, for many of the things outside of aged care. The other, the other thing um, that we've really had some traction with is, is with the um, space of insurance, private insurance, because they really need to look after people and offer them treatments that are valuable to them. And one of the key things that stops that is people not understanding what's going to happen when they have a treatment and often they decline. So by going through our value-based process, they can maybe make some decisions later on that save them from having these horrible treatments or support them to have the treatments that they do want yeah. so that it's in line with their preferences. And that in turn saves the economy billions of dollars that can be invested in better healthcare supports elsewhere. This episode of the podcast is particularly about innovations from within Wollongong, but also for the people of Wollongong as well. Have you always been based in Wollongong yourself? No, um, I'm old enough to have been based in many places. <laughs> However, I did go to university um, back in the day at Wollongong and I'm a graduate, yeah. um, a nursing graduate, and I moved back to Wollongong eight years ago. And that's been really positive because it gives me the, the ability to connect with researchers, with the university, mm-hmm. with industry that you don't often get in some of the other regional areas. It certainly feels like a bit of a, um, you know, a single... But, given that there's 
the university and everyone seems to to collaborate um, as as enabled by the university, plus all of these great resources around innovation really feels kind of front and center in, in a lot of what goes on. So um, I can see why there's plenty of good startups that come from here that some people might not have otherwise known about. And look, the University of Wollongong, I mean, it's got world-leading researchers. Just across from us is mm-hmm. ASRI, so, which is the most respected um, body of researchers regarding end-of-life care. And being able to collaborate so closely and build relationships and, and change things is one of the fantastic things that the university has to offer and, and why they've chosen to be here too, because yeah. they get to benefit from, from technology as well. Lastly, then thinking about yourself and Exitu and and everything going on, we're entering, we've entered into a, another new year. What's on the horizon? What can we look forward to seeing from Exitu in 2023 and beyond? Oh, so many things. Um, continued growth, um, more impact and, and really um, being able to dial up the number of people's lives we can improve, including those people that are caring for others and measure that and show it. Um, that would be wonderful for me. Love it. Thank you, April. So next up, I speak to Ashley Wessling, who's a student here at University of Wollongong. We recorded this one at the Innovation Centre. So I speak with Ashley about the work she's doing on a PhD and how online communities will impact healthcare in the future. Here we go. Thanks so much for making the time. Introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do. Oh yeah, so um, I'm Ashley. I'm currently doing a a Doctor of Philosophy or a PhD here at UOW, uh, combined with a Master of Clinical Psychology. So- um, And you're a local? I'm a local, yes. Yes. I'm not born and bred here, but I moved down here to to do the degree. So a place to do it, I think it's great. Stunning. It's uh, definitely put the weather on for for my trip down here as well. So yeah, um, it's, it's a hot one. It's great. It's great yeah. to be out to sit in the shade for a little. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, talk to me a bit more about the research that you're doing. Yeah. So um, my PhD is focused on online chat-based peer support communities for substance use, um, and it's understanding what is it about uh, these kind of chat-based communities that make them effective? So I guess in kind of more clinical terms, like what are the mechanisms of change or what are the kind of treatment ingredients that are happening in these kind of platforms mm-hmm. that relate to health outcomes? Yeah, when you say chat-based communities, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, all text. So okay. not, not, you know, online video communities. So I know, you know, during kind of the um, COVID pandemic, uh, a lot of the kind of traditional face-to-face peer support communities like AA or, you know, NA, Smart Recovery, um, they would kind of do, uh, you know, move their service online, but it would actually still be over video. So we're not talking about that. It's purely just chat-based, so all text kind of communities. And is this chat with somebody else or with a computer? What does it, like That's, AI? Yeah. No, so it's um, mostly with other people. Okay. So, yeah, other, other kind of peers uh, that are going through a similar experience. Sometimes we have um, like moderators, so it depends on the community, but often there are trained moderators that are in there kind of, you know, maybe getting certain conversations started or maybe kind of um, diving a bit deeper into something that a, that a member has shared yes. um, and also managing risk and that kind of thing as well. Yeah. And so are you looking at then the effectiveness of that kind of modality for, for um, receiving treatment or is it more about like, the, like what, what's, what are you looking at broadly in terms? And actually I'm interested in the effectiveness and, and where that might be leading because um, some might think, well, you know, being able to do an in-person consultation with someone is always going to be 
much more of a gold standard compared to chat-based modalities, but um, is there is there space for both? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there's a lot of research at the moment that's looking at, you know, um, comparing, okay, what is, is you know, face-to-face kind of the best mo- modality? Is mm. it more effective or can you get the same benefit from, you know, an online setting? Um, I'd say a lot of the research that's coming out um, for both that kind of one-to-one setting uh, versus say like a self-paced online program. So now you find that, okay, you could do or go through the same kind of, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy modules um, in a self-paced online program that you could with, you know, a, a kind of a clinician face-to-face. Um, and there, I think um, I'm not, again, this isn't kind of my specific area, um, but I think a lot of the research is showing that they're still quite effective. Mm. Um, and in terms of, I guess, moving it back to more my, my area of interest, so that kind of online peer support, um, yeah, I mean, at the moment that the research is really preliminary and it's a very kind of new emerging space. Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing is that, yeah, they, they actually are kind of share kind of similar levels of efficacy of, um, you know, more kind of established traditional mm. forms of peer support. Um, but of course, the added benefit of these online chat based communities is that um, there are even less kind of barriers to entry. Right. So um, they are in some ways, um, I mean, even though. AA, right? It's anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, but often kind of the the um, resistance to going to those groups can be uh, that you're, you know, you might see someone you know, sure. or, um, you know, what would that mean? And, and how mm. would that feel? Um, but these kind of online spaces are, are really anonymous. Yeah. Um, so you can, you know, choose pseudonym um, and really, yeah, feel comfortable to kind of share and engage in, in you know, discussions pretty freely. Mm. Um, so there's that kind of added layer of, yeah, of anonymity. Um, but I guess the other thing is to, yeah, they're free, but also available at, you know, 24 seven, essentially, right? Often these communities um, are, yeah, there's someone there online all night. So um, if you think about, um, you know, substance use disorders, where typically people kind of will have cravings at, at different times and be, you know, at risk of kind of lapsing or relapsing. Um, I mean, you know, the benefit of kind of being able to whip out your phone from your back pocket and jump on and get support immediately in the moment yeah. um, kind of adds this whole other dimension really to yeah. um, that more traditional kind of face-to-face, which is, you know, there's lots of meetings each day and each week, um, but often, you know, they're at set times. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking through, coming from my own naive non-clinical perspective, but as a clinician, would you not need to know some information about somebody to be able to provide effective support to them? Like in a true anonymous environment and you don't know who you're talking to, how can you provide like effective treatment? Because there's, of course, from a clinician's point of view, you know, everything is confidential and nothing leaves the room, et cetera, but you know more about the person. Whereas in this kind of setting, like, is it truly anonymous in the sense that it's chatting with somebody in a text or online yeah. you don't know? And that's a really good question. And it's um, that was something that came up a lot, actually, in our kind of governance meetings at this uh, great organization I used to work for called Hello Sunday Morning. Um, but, you know, that you're, yeah, you're, you're kind of, um, uh, I guess, promoting yourself as an anonymous service, but obviously you still need, you know, you need an email address to sign up, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously that's not like pure anonymity. Yeah. But also when we talk about risk, right, I mean, how much information do we need to be able to, if someone is expressing, you know, um, or, or kind of... Um, yeah, is presenting as being at risk yeah. um, of harm to themselves or others, um, you need to be able to kind of um, get in contact with them, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, often we will still be able to kind of trace IP addresses, that kind of thing. So yeah. that's quite a common thing for um, for online organizations um, so that you can actually kind of direct, you know, emergency services to someone's kind of location. 
Um, but often, yeah, there might still be some kind of level of, of, of contact details that aren't obviously available to the other members. Yeah. But um, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I think setting that expectation and being clear with that from the outset would, would you know, address all those those reasons absolutely absolutely and so they're the main problems to to be solved here we're we're looking at you know improving access making it freely available 24 7 these are the if if we get this right these are the problems that are to be solved yeah i mean i think um well i guess the the kind of problem that really inspired my Mm. phd was um you know after working as an online community manager for maybe two and a half years for a chat-based um, community focused on uh, alcohol use um, or supporting people with changing their uh, alcohol use. The kind of key problem that I found was, uh, you know, I'd started kind of looking into all these resources and trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I do this? Like, how do I manage an online community of, you know, hundreds or if not thousands of people? Um, how do you kind of make this effective? And what I found was that there actually weren't that many resources or the resources that were available um, we're really heavily focused on more, um, you know, like commercial communities, like brand-based communities mm. and, you know, think, um, you know, online communities that try and, you know, answer questions and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And, and obviously the outcome that you're focused on in that case might be sales or sure. reducing your costs for customer service because you're, you know, your community is answering the questions. Mm-hmm. But when we're thinking about a health context, um, we're not really interested in necessarily sales or you know, questions, I mean, we're interested in questions getting answered, but we're more interested in kind of the quality of support, Mm. right? Um, And so uh, what I found was, yeah, there just wasn't really anything that that really helped kind of understand, okay, well, what do I need to do to even measure the efficacy of what's going on in this community? How can I do a bit of a pulse check on whether, you know, um, the things are happening in this community that need to happen in order to create, you know, a good experience and promote good health outcomes? Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where the kind of inspiration for my PhD came about. I was mm. like, well, you know, there's a real gap here. Like, yeah. wouldn't it be great if we actually understood how these how these work? Um, and, you know, potentially, yeah, down the line, uh, develop maybe a, a kind of more objective measure of, of you know, what's mm. actually going on in the community using things like natural language processing or other kind of AI um, systems, right, mm. that can actually kind of, you know, do a kind of in-the-moment pulse check really on the community and understand, okay, what's going on um, and give a bit of kind of feedback to, to um, people managing the spaces. Yeah. What are your thoughts then in terms of the role of AI in these types of community? You kind of answered it just then in terms of, you know, looking at the future potentially where humans just chat to robots and, you know, yeah. that's, and then robots talk to robots and then where yeah. there's, there's no one needs anything. So, <laughs> is that is that is that what happens? Like, yeah, what, it's such an happen? interesting. Oh, it's such an interesting thought. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, thinking ahead, I can definitely see there being um, yeah some some level of kind of automaticity where that is being run by you know. I mean, it's already happening, right? We have chatbots and things sure. that occur in um, not only those kind of more commercial spaces, but um, I'm sure. Yeah, I've definitely seen some research yeah. happening on. Um, yeah, there being a, a, a chatbot on the other side or um, even text messaging services, right? You can text message in crisis and it might be more of a bot on the other side that's yeah. answering um, and responding in the moment. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's happening, right? It's already happening. So, I, I yeah, I think the, the options for that and what that might look like in the future are kind of endless, really. To watch. And yeah. you mentioned as well, you, you are at Hello Sunday Morning. There's, there's probably a nice tie-in there with the work that you're doing at VHD, but you've also got a bit of a clinical background as well. So your background in both commercially and, and um, clinically kind of tie in nicely to this. I, I assume that's inspiring some of the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, my time with Hello Sunday Morning um, definitely inspired kind of the, the work that I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And final thoughts then, uh, what, how, what would you hope that people, once, you know, your PhD is completed and you've got a life again, yeah. um, <laughs> other oh than having God, a life again, when's it happen? <laughs> <laughs> any other outcomes that you would hope would come from that? How would you hope people use the research that come from the, yeah. the work you're doing? Well, um, I think my favorite piece of my research, um, is, you know, because obviously the understanding mechanisms of change is not new mm-hmm. per se. It's, you know, a lot of that research has already been done on traditional communities. And I'd imagine that there's going to be quite a bit of overlap in what we see in the in the chat-based space as well. Mm-hmm. However, um, what I think is a really interesting kind of additional component to these kind of online chat-based communities is the, um, the kind of influence that the actual interface itself might have on outcomes. So, um, what I also noticed in my time kind of working in the, in the industry before starting my PhD is that um, anyone can really design um, or create an, an online space, right, an app. Sure. Um, and often, you know, engineers might kind of use the same design or persuasive design elements that, um, you know, like social media platforms use. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think about like the infinite scroll, right? Like yeah. our community had the infinite scroll. And... So, yeah, I guess uh, my kind of interest is also in uh, what role does like the interface design have on also Mm. the experience of using these um, health and support kind of communities, Um, but also what's the ethics behind that as well? Because if we're, you know, I mean, we we know how bad and and scary this whole kind of world of social media has been, right, in in, um, being actually pretty addictive, right, Mm. and really undermining our, our kind of sense of autonomy and control over when we use it, how long we use it, that kind of thing. Um, and we're employing some of these same kind of design principles in these, you know, health and support spaces. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, gamification, those mm-hmm. kinds of things that happen, right? Give people badges if they're big contributors, um, all those things, which I mean, on the surface, right? It's like, is it really a bad thing if we're getting people to use a health and support community a lot? Um, but I guess it's a question, right? I mean, yeah. does it, if you're undermining someone's autonomy though, um, and, you know, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? What are the ethics of that? Um, so I think uh, that, uh, that, piece of my of my research I'm really interested to look into a bit more of that and see um, you know what kinds of persuasive design elements are online support communities using and what are the potential implications of those that's interesting too because you know it's like putting in another perspective like thinking about uh, cybersecurity breaches or, or other kind of privacy leaks these don't happen often from companies doing nefarious things deliberately it comes from the best intentions but then something happens so in, in, in your example, where if you're trying to build the best community possible by increasing engagement and making it um, a, a pleasure to use, um, potentially you're undermining some of the things that you're trying to instill in the first place. Absolutely, which mm. is what happened, right? I mean, even I think it's, um, is it as a Raskin who developed the Infinite Scroll? I mean, it was initially done to just create um, a seamless uh, user experience, yeah, right. right? To make it really pleasant and that it just keeps, you know, mm. never ends and you can just keep going. But, you know, the the consequence of that has been that actually it's, um, you know, that it's been likened to mm. really using a slot machine yeah. um, because it's on this kind of intermittent reinforcement schedule. So you're, you're you know, it's just like you just fall into this a scroll hole, right? Mm. It's like the the just kind of, you know, you hours disappear and you're like, oh, crap, like yeah. what have I been doing? Um, and that wasn't the intention, right? But it actually has had, you know, these these pretty serious consequences, mm. um, which, you know, of course that could happen in, in this context, right, where we're actually trying to, um, support people to, you know, to kind of, um, yeah, get, get better and recover. Um, but yeah, what are, what are the kind of possible unintended consequences of, um, not actually thinking about the ethics of the design we're even using for these platforms. Such great, interesting work and lots to reflect on. Can't wait to hear more when it comes through. Um, Ashley, thanks so much for making the time. 
No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player and it should just take you straight there. Thank you. Here at the Innovation Campus for University of Wollongong, it's about a 15-minute bus ride across, taking the opportunity to speak to different people working on this side. And it's great to see a big focus on innovation from the university, particularly in health and well-being. They've got some good research going on there. Great support for startups in terms of just the facilities and the ability to meet up with others. I talked with a couple of those startups here in this trip today, but also speak to the director of I accelerate to Mantha about the work they're doing to support startups to take their ideas into execution. Some great resources, tool opportunities for collaboration amongst the community to really get things done and make a meaningful impact. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for joining in me in the. Uh, uh, what is what is this? this is it's an emptied out shipping container on the roof of I accelerate. Yeah, right. I. I don't think I've been in an emptied out shipping container on top of I Accelerate before. So well, there you go. There first you time go. for anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so, so we're on I Accelerate. Talk, talk to me about you and, and your role at I Accelerate. Yep. So I'm the director of I Accelerate. So mm-hmm. I have this great job of helping people take their ideas and turn them into startups and have an impact in the world. Yeah, right. Right here in Wollongong. Yep. And, and it's, so there's there's startups that are working. So that's a co-working space? Yeah. So we're a co-working space, incubator and accelerator. So we can take 280 desks. So we have a 80 desk co-working space and then we have individual offices that are interconnected. So companies can grow and expand. Mm-hmm. Um, they normally spend between one and three years here until they're ready to, to outgrow us really and go and set up somewhere else in, in the Illawarra. Of course. Well, I spoke to uh, April from Exitu, they're based here. So, and I think there's a few health-based organisations here as well, right? Yeah. So we're technology agnostic, so we don't um, seek out a particular type of industry, but most of them tend to be in this region a lot around health mm-hmm. um, and aged care innovation, as well as other things like energy and sustainability. Um, that's where the, the, the industries in the region are. Mm-hmm. It's where the strengths of the university are, and it's where a lot of innovation is needed. Right. So we're like we're within the innovation campus of the university. So that's a little bit unique as well, right? Yeah. So there are a number of in- incubators and accelerators around Australia that have spun out of universities or operate in mm. universities. We all sort of operate with a different target audience or in a slightly different way. Um, but what we try and do here is bring startups and innovators in from the community to benefit from the expertise, the workforce and the staffing and research from within the university. And then we also are pulling great ideas out of the university and supporting students to start their own startups all in the one spot. It's interesting. It ties together so nicely with a lot of the conversations I've had for this feature episode about innovation in Wollongong because I've spoken with... Uh, healthcare providers running their own practice within a community within the community of Wollongong. I've talked to PhD students, talked to organisations out in the the ecosystem that are creating technology, and then we've done the uh, the tours of the labs and seeing the research, like deep in the the weeds of getting those early stage kind of innovations out, and then some of the startups here in I Accelerate too. So I feel like you're kind of bringing together a lot of that that innovation that happens here in this really unique unique opportunity you've got in Wollongong. 
Yeah, so everyone talks about innovation ecosystems and what the drivers are and what makes innovation ecosystems successful. Successful, And a lot of it is to do with the community and the connectedness. Mm. And so that's where Wollongong is a really nice place. We've got a world-class university, but we're a one-university town. We've got some big healthcare systems. We've got heavy industry. We've got a really large health and ageing um, workforce and workforce population. We're a really connected and innovative community. So we're sort of unlike anywhere else mm. to have a, a startup and accelerator zone because everyone wants to help everyone out. Everyone in Wollongong is connected to everyone by a few degrees of separation. And so when you need an answer to your problem or to connect with someone in the university or to connect someone in the industry or someone to solve a problem you've got, you're really quite close to to the solution mm. that you need. And I think about that's the whole ethos and and uh, purpose behind talking health tech too. I mean, you know, the, the whole collaboration starts with a conversation and bringing different stakeholders together. Uh, it sounds like, you know, that's that's very much at the heart of Wollongong and that's what we do. Thinking of other communities around Australia that are really thriving for innovation in their space and they might not have just the one LHD and just the one university and this kind of innovation at its core. Is it just that, you know, sucked in you can't because you're not Wollongong or is there things that you can share that that might help other communities, big or small, to be able to kind of foster some more, drive some more innovation in that ecosystem? Look, I think at the core, people are really about making the world a better place and changing the world for better. So I, I think if you make connections with the people that you need to have conversations with, most often than not, people will be able to to help and support you. And so I think what we, you don't want is to innovate in isolation. You want to be talking to the people that are going to apply your technology, the people that are going to use your mm. technology, the people that are going to buy it and sell it. And so you need to make sure that as you're innovating, you're not just developing your solution in isolation. You really need to be talking to your future customers and your future suppliers. And so that's much easier in a region like this where we're all interconnected, but really like COVID has changed us all. There's no such thing as only waiting for a face-to-face meeting. And mm-hmm. most people, you know, if you approach them in the right way, be open to helping you. Yeah. So, yeah. I get it. And that makes sense. And I imagine there are many early stage startup founders or healthcare providers, innovators uh, who think, I get it. I need to be able to speak to more people and knock on doors, but you, you can knock on a lot of doors and people might not be, you know, might not have the time or totally understand, but it sounds like that's some of the stuff that you do here at iAccelerate is almost create some of those opportunities. Yeah, definitely. So when, you know, it's not just about being in the building, it's about being alongside other founders. It's Mm. being connected to our alumni. It's having experts in residence and mentors. It's having um, us connect you um, to seed funding and access to funding. So it's making sure that all those pieces of the puzzle are in the ecosystem and are talking and connected to each other. And so we really facilitate a lot of that. So by being in this building, we can connect you to the research or connect you to um, a founder that's in your area that's been down that pathway before. And so that's what we spend a lot of our time doing. And thinking then about the the future, you know, we're, we're back after COVID and, or mostly and, uh, you know, in this new world and you're bringing people together within the building, but there's also this interconnectedness and, and connecting with many more outside of Wollongong as well. What's on the radar? What, what's your priorities, particularly from iAccelerate? What can we see from you and what might, you know, members expect from iAccelerate as well? Yeah, so we're really expanding our outreach into the undergraduate community at UOW. So mm-hmm. really trying to provide entrepreneurial experiences for the students. 
and support them if at the end of their career what they want to do or why they're doing uni is create their own startup. Yeah. Um, and then we're really trying to work around thematic areas that are important to this region. And so working really hard to connect energy startups with energy industry and energy students and research or health yeah. in the same way. And so pulling out a couple of key areas of priority and making sure that the innovation is really connected in that circle. Sam, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thanks for coming down. As we wrap up this feature episode about innovation in healthcare in Wollongong, I thought two days would be enough, <laughs> but you'd need two weeks or more to cover some of the amazing innovations and the support that's provided to all the different stakeholders in healthcare to make a meaningful impact. So the fact that I was able to speak to healthcare providers out in the community that are caring for local residents of Wollongong and what their needs are from technology through to students who are studying right here at the university and pulling together research which potentially will support what future innovations will be and hopefully we can commercialise those. Then speak to some of those here in the university that are helping to do exactly that, bringing together the early stage research through different stages and then how do you bring it to commercialisation and to realise it and then thinking about the startup ecosystem and the culture that's being built to connect all those different stakeholders through to the local health district and other parts of the community to help make it happen. So I couldn't ask for much more other than more time and I can't wait to come back again and visit Wollongong because they're building the healthcare precinct. It was half of the interviews I wanted to do, we just didn't get the time. So this concept of visiting a community and thinking about how to innovate amongst healthcare and make an impact. This is something that I absolutely want to do in other parts of Australia as well and hopefully utilise this platform to get the word out. So if you know of a university or an ecosystem that we can do something similar again, let's reach out, get in touch with us and do what this podcast was made to do, bring people together within the health tech ecosystem one conversation at a time. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com. 